start off by saying that last week, last Sunday, we had our women's night, and it was just absolutely incredible. You all were such a great blessing to Breaking the Chains. Um, And Breaking the Chains has purchased a house uh, so that when women are rescued from human trafficking, uh, they stay there for help and healing. And we as a church have committed to furnishing one of those homes, one one of the rooms in the homes. And so uh, uh, over the next couple of months, all of our missions giving will go to breaking the chains. And so if you on, in your giving and you want to give specifically to missions or to this project, you can just write missions in the memo section, and that will go to help furnishing a room for this wonderful organization. And if you give online, you can just hit the tab, um, uh, the giving tab down and click missions, and that will all go there for the next couple of months. So thank you so much for your generosity to Prodigal and advancing the kingdom of God. Uh, I'm so thrilled about the direction and the trajectory of our women's ministry. Uh, we were in a church leadership meeting a year ago, and we're gathered in my living room, and uh, we're just kind of evaluating everything that we were doing and how the first six months of us as a church had gone. And, and my wife kind of says this. She says, we need to be doing more to, for other people. She goes, we say love God, love people, but we're not really doing a ton of like loving people outside of our own church. And so kind of through that moment, it was just really a, a pivotal, momentous moment in, in the life of our church, uh, we began to explore and do all kinds of different things. Um, and breaking the chains in this connection with this ministry happened because of that. And so I'm just so thrilled to see the fruit that's already come out of that vision. It, it really is amazing. We have a w- amazing women in our church and I have an amazing woman in my house. Um, and now we turn to some of the most difficult and disturbing scriptures of all time. The imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory comes from the word imprecation, which means to curse. These are the cursing psalms. Not cursing as in swear words, though I do feel that many of the psalms would have the Hebrew equivalent to our swear words because they're so honest, but cursing as in wishing ruin or destruction on people or a person. Uh, So let's dive in together. Are you guys ready? We're going to do some theology today, uh, and it's going to be awesome. Psalm 3-7, it says this, Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Sounds good so far. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. Okay. Psalm 58-6, Break the teeth in their mouths. He loves breaking the teeth thing, doesn't he? Uh, Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along. Like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. David goes dark here. Really dark. It's one of the reasons why I wore this bright flamingo shirt. Because the sermon's so dark today, okay? Got to have some kind of light in life on the stage. Uh, That's not very nice, David. Uh, No, it's not. But you've had these thoughts. We see them as thoughts of justice, right? I just want people to get what's coming to them. Uh, I just want them to know how much they've hurt me. But this is bold honesty in prayer, even in revealing the darkest parts that lie within David. Psalm 58.10, the wicked will be swept away, the righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. We want to slay them, 
then we want to walk around their corpses and get blood on our bare feet. Psalm 109, 6 through 10. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. He's saying, I hope he dies, but that's not enough. I want to curse the whole family as well. Have you had enough yet? You're like, please make it stop. Hold on, just 37 more, okay? Um, but that is an accurate list of all the imprecatory prayers listed in the Psalms. I don't know if you guys remember this song. It came out in the 1970s by the Rivers of Babylon. Uh, it, it says, where we sat and wept. We played it during the meet and greet. It was originally written in 1970 by a Rastafari band. Uh, and it blew up when Bonnie Rivers covered it later that decade. The Gaithers redid it. Sublime redid it in the 90s. Anybody remember that song? It comes from the Bible, Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. No? Okay. It's a song that makes you want to love the Psalms. It's, it's, it's happy. It's got a good vibe to it. That Psalm 137 ends this way, and the lyrics didn't contain the end of this psalm. Let's read it together. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. By the rivers of Babylon, we dash your babies. We've got a problem with the scriptures here, right? And if you think, oh, well, that's Old Testament. That was way back then. Actually, Jesus quotes the imprecatory Psalms and uses uh, imprecatory language with religious leaders in condemning the systematic oppression that they were doing to the people. Peter quotes the imprecatory Psalms as the fulfillment of what Judas had done and how he ended up hanging himself and falling and burst forthing his intestines all over the ground. In fact, no other psalms, no other genre of psalms is quoted more in the New Testament than the imprecatory psalms. The problem isn't the Old Testament versus the New Testament. The problem is when we look at the teachings of Jesus, who teaches us to love our enemies, not curse them, right? In Luke 9, Jesus actually rebukes John and James, the sons of thunder, because they wanted to call down judgment on a village that rejected Jesus. And Jesus says, ah, zip it. No, don't do that. You're doing it wrong. It's not just in Jesus. Paul says it too. Look at Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil. If it is possible, live peaceably with all men. Do not avenge yourselves. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. So there you have it. In the same Bible, it tells us to change the world through self-sacrificial love. And it tells us the joy we'll have in dashing the enemy's children's on rocks. We have a problem here. In fact, this problem has actually led many people to abandon the Christianity thing altogether. Well, well the Bible is this barbaric, violent thing. So, bye. I'm, I, and I'm throwing Jesus out with it. Now, there are many ways that theologians and scholars have tried to reconcile the enemy 
love that Jesus represents and the violence that we find elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, let me give you a brief summary of these three theories, okay? The first theory says that these psalms are an example for us to follow, okay? This is the literal theory, that these psalms are actually something that we should do. They reveal God's hatred for sin and evil, and we should hate sin and evil as well. And there are times in the life of the Christian when we have tried love, and we have tried to love them, we have tried to love them, but they just won't repent of their wickedness, and so it is now okay that we pray for God to curse them in their wickedness and their rebellion. John Piper holds this view, a prominent Christian pastor. There are many Christians who interpret the Psalms this way. Some of you are getting a little uncomfortable. Uh, the second theory is actually the exact opposite. We'll call this one the loving theory. This theory states that the imprecatory Psalms are not an example of how we should pray. They're an example of how not to pray. Uh, they're descriptive, not prescriptive. They're descriptive in that they describe the totality of the human experience, and that's okay to bring it to God. And they're not prescriptive. They're not teaching us how to pray. C.S. Lewis, probably the greatest theologian in the 20th century, takes this approach. This is what he says about the imprecatory psalms. We must not either try to explain them away or to yield for one moment to the idea that because it comes in the Bible, all this vindictive hatred must somehow be good or pious. We must face both facts squarely. The hatred is there, festering, gloating, undisguised, and also we should, we should be wicked if we in any way condoned or approved of it. John Piper says it's righteous. C.S. Lewis says it's wicked. The third way to view these psalms is through the lens of liberation. We must recognize that the majority of the psalms are not violent at all. In the instances where a psalmist speaks positively of violence, they're rare. Wherever we do find imprecation in Scripture, it's not triumph triumphalistic gloating. Instead, it's it is always issued from a, a position of weakness or victimization. It is the oppressed who are crying out for God's vengeance and wrath on their enemies. Imprecation recognizes that God is the sole source of deliverance and judgment. He can in, intervene within creation. He upholds it. So in that sense, God may arrange the downfall for specific evildoers to his will even before Christ's return. He hears the people's prayers in a variety of ways. And on those grounds, the imprecatory prayers can be directed towards specific evildoers as an expression for our desire for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, there are many variations to these three different theories. Um, I, and I'm not, no matter where you land or which theory resonates most with you, I believe that as we look at the imprecatory psalms, there is some present-day applications for us. But first... A video. This is a clip from a couple of years ago. Brittany, our children's pastor, um, is sitting in a room with her two daughters, and her oldest daughter, Jesslyn, doesn't know that mom's filming her. Watch what ensues. Let's watch that. Let's watch that again. Okay, now let's zoom in. Now let's zoom in and slow-mo. Okay. 
I'm amazed that this moment got caught on camera. This moment of, I want to beat you over the head with this toy. This to an abrupt right turn. Picture two siblings playing in the backyard. One burst through the door crying. He hit me. And as a parent, you don't know who struck who first. The child then uses the most colorful language to describe their pain and their attack, right? And then as you bandage their wound, as they're crying, they're yelling, ground them. He did it. Get him in trouble. Send him to his room. They're in pain. They're wounded. They're crying. As a parent, here's one thing you don't do. You don't silence them in that moment. You let them get it all out. And then after some time, and they're complaining, and they're saying, get them, we say, how about you leave that part to me? I suspect that this is what we encounter in the imprecatory psalms. Given our deep propensity to violence, what do we do with these urges for vengeance? I think there are three things we can do. Number one, we can act it out. Okay, so someone gets me. I, I want to get revenge, so I go and get them worse. We could repress it or deny it. I think many of us operate in that realm. Let's just hide it. These vengeful oh, oh, hatred, unforgiveness, wrath, this cursing of our enemies. We just repress it and pretend it's not there. I think that's where most of us live. Or three, we could give it to God. And I think this is what the psalmists are doing. They're unloading it to God. It's important to notice that the psalmist does not attempt to enact the retaliation himself, right? In all of these cursing psalms, it never says, and because they did this, I'm going to go over to their house, I'm going to beat them up, and I'm going to throw their kids around a bit. Never says that. It says, God, you do that. He's not taking it into his own hands. He's taking it to God. He knows that only God is big enough to be entrusted with this unresolved hatred that lies within. In these Psalms, David never asks to be allowed to get even or to pay back his enemies. His prayer is that God would act justly in dealing with his transgressors. You see, there is a vast difference between vindication and vindictiveness. And that's a tough dance to do. But we lay it all before the king of kings. Now that said, I still have a problem with Psalm 137. The murder of babies and infants, it's not something I'm ever going to condone, nor do I think God condones it. I agree with C.S. Lewis, who later on in his commentary on the Psalms, says this of the passages and the sentences at the end of Psalm 137. They are indeed devilish. Here's a Christian theologian, Chronicles of Narnia, you know, uh, Aslan, you know, like this is, this is a, a, one of the most celebrated Christian theologians is saying that when this psalmist prays that there'll be joy at the slaughter of babies being dashed to the ground of our enemies, 
he calls them devilish. Now, the rhetoric of Psalm 137 is unrestrained, reckless, and shameless. And we might wish it weren't there in the Psalms or in the Bible at all. But these Psalms are testimonies of the world around us. That it's not safe. It's not nice. It is a violent place. And the Psalms reveal that there is a seething, restless, chaotic underside to our shared existence. And this is true now, and it was true 3,000 years ago. These psalms offer a script whereby that ugly, unruly underside is handed over to the majesty and wisdom of God. And as horrific as the imprecation is at the end of Psalm 137, the Babylonians, who this is regarding, this is the enemies he's referring to, had no doubt done the same thing when they conquered Jerusalem and put everyone in exile. They had done that to their infants and children. The principle of lax talionis, which is, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. They did this to us, we do that to them. That was still the law at this time. It was the ultimate standard. But it wasn't the final word. It wasn't the final standard. It was one that God himself had established to regulate the punishment of crimes in the ancient world. Matthew Ponsolet is a young man in Louisiana in the early 1980s. He got involved in the wrong crowd, and he was out with one of his friends, and they encountered a young couple parked at a local lover's lane. They ordered the young couple out of the car. They raped the young woman and then killed them both. Matthew Ponsolet is arrested, and he's placed on death row. And there's a Catholic nun named Sister Prejean who decided to go visit and get to know some of the prisoners on death row. And as she is there, she encounters Matthew Ponsolet and begins to learn his story. And this narrative is retold in the 1995 film Dead Man Walkin' with Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn. Sister Prejean, as I think you could probably understand, is not welcomed by the parents of those teenagers who were killed by Matthew Ponsolet. At one point, she decides to go out and meet with the parents of Hope, the young woman who was killed. Now, when she first comes and knocks on the door, the parents misinterpret her intentions. And this is how the dialogue goes. Mr. Percy says, so what made you change your mind? Change my mind? What made you come around to our side? She says, I wanted to come and see if I could help y'all and pray with you. Thank you. She continues, but he asked me to be his spiritual advisor to be with him when he dies. And what did you say? That I would. We thought you changed your mind. We thought that's why you were here. No. How can you come here? How can you do that? How can you sit with that scum? Mr. Percy, I've never done this before. I'm trying. I'm trying to follow the example of Jesus who said that every person is worth more than their worst act. This is not a person. This is an animal. No, I take that back. This is not an animal. Animals don't rape and murder their own kind. Matthew Ponsolet is God's mistake. And if you want to hold the poor murderer's hand, you want to comfort him when he dies, there wasn't anybody in the woods to comfort our daughter when those two animals pressed her face to the grass. The emotion in that living room could be felt for miles. If you have ever been so enraged 
so angry, so filled with hatred towards a person or a people, then you have a friend in the psalmist because he's been there too. Though it is understandable and unbearable, I must say, that to remain in that place is not healthy. To forever remain in a place of hatred and longing for the destruction of our enemy is simply a place that we cannot remain. It destroys your soul and it might cost you more than that. These psalms voice a common sentiment for humans. We're vengeful creatures. Our rage and indignation must be fully owned and fully expressed. Then, and only then, can our rage and indignation be yielded to the mercy of God. Rather than banning such rage from the worship of God in the life of faith, Walter Brueggemann nobly insists that this rage is rightly carried even to the presence of Yahweh, that it may be relinquished there. That we can bring rage before God so that it may be relinquished before God. Leave everything in God's hands, even feelings of hatred and aggression. God's big enough to handle it. The most familiar prayer in the Anglican tradition addresses God as the one from whom no secrets are hid. The one from whom no secrets are hid. And the prayer suggests that we spend a lot of our time in every aspect of our lives hiding things, hiding secrets. But prayer with God is the one place where such secrets cannot and must not be hidden. And the Psalms testify to this. The Psalms suggest that it is our propensity to violence that cannot be hidden. And these Psalms are an honest record of that human experience. I want to invite Noe in the band up. And we'll close with this. We're, we're nearing the Easter season and we're nearing Holy Week. Holy Week begins on Palm Sunday and it culminates with Resurrection Sunday the following week. In this Holy Week, you can't get to Sunday without going through Friday. And Friday was the day Jesus was nailed to the cross. God became human. God knit everyone in their mother's wombs. God made everyone in the image of him. And then he is crucified by the, his own creation. Jesus, who's innocent, whose only crime, Jesus wasn't nailed to the cross because he was exclusive for who he kept out. Jesus was nailed to the cross because of who he let in. He wasn't nailed to the cross because of his exclusivity. He was nailed to the cross because of his inclusivity. He let the savages come in. He let the drunks come in. He let the tax collectors and the adulterers and the prostitutes, he let them in. And that was so scandalous to the religious elite that Rome crucified him. And if ever there was a point, Jesus nailing on the cross, dying for the sinners who nailed him there, if ever there was a point for an imprecatory psalms, it's that time, right? It's God curse him. God, lightning on these soldiers who have just pierced my side. Lightning on these soldiers who have put a thorny crown on my head. Lightning around all the people mocking who hit you. If ever 
there was an opportunity for an imprecatory prayer. It was then. He prays instead, Father, forgive them. We're not called Psalmians. We're called Christians. We follow Jesus. There's nothing wrong with being angry at sin. But when we let that anger consume us to the point that we turn it upon the sinners, then we turn our own anger into sin. No, we don't turn our hatred of sin to sinners because then it makes you hate them. That's not the call. That's not the call of the Christian. It's not the call of the Christ follower. We bring those all to God so that we may love everyone. We may make a difference. We've been forgiven much, so we should forgive others much. And I don't get it, and it doesn't make sense. Grace never will. I just know it doesn't leave me the same. And it calls me to a more expansive, bigger hope and vision, not a more stringent one. If you're reading the Bible, and you're reading these Psalms, and you're following Jesus, if, you be, if that leads you to more hatred in your heart and life towards people that are made in the image of God, you're doing it wrong. God, I pray in Jesus' name that we grasp that. And God, for those of us who have been harboring feelings of unforgiveness, feelings of vengeance, feelings of wrath and judgment and hatred towards people or towards a person, can we follow the example of the psalmist and lay it before you? God, liberate us from the hold that the darkness inside of us has on us. We thank you, Jesus, for your example. That you forgive us. That you forgave the people who nailed you to the cross. And you shined the brightest light in the midst of the most immense darkness. So God, no, no matter what darkness lies within our souls, would you shine that light again, Jesus? What a wonderful name we have in Jesus. What a wonderful, what a beautiful, what a powerful name we have in Jesus. The name above all names means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. Thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you, thank you for your scandalous love and grace. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we declare the beautiful, powerful, wonderful name of Jesus?